the leaders have been rewarded for a certain set of behaviors. And so part of what I've come to believe is that the conditions inside of the organization direct that. The reward systems inside the organization um, promote a certain way of working, a way of getting results. And you might be the smartest person in the room, but it doesn't for a moment really make a difference when, you know, you maybe you've left a trail of bodies behind you because you've trampled over, you know, the rest of the team or you've taken all the credit or you've thrown people under the bus. And they continue to get rewarded. So until that reward system pauses and says, hold on a second, right? What kind of leader are we building here? What kind of organizational climate are we creating? And are we intentional about who we want to be as an organization, how we want to show up, what kind of employee experience do we want to deliver? What kind of you know end user or patient experience do you want to deliver? And what is that narrative that we want them to carry with them throughout the course of their journey? Welcome to Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I will be your host again this week. You know, every single week, I am more and more blessed. I get better and better guests, and they've all been amazing. When I first started out with this podcast, I thought, oh my goodness, nobody's going to come on. Nobody's going to want to come on my guests. But each and every week, I've got some guests that help me with my promise, and that is to inspire and to teach communication and make people want to be better. And this week is no exception. So this week, my guest is Holly O'Driscoll. Holly is an industry expert in the field of design thinking and human-centered innovation. As a global design thinking leader at Procter & Gamble, Holly partnered with teams across the company to lead more than 250 design thinking experiences, often at the request of C-suite executives. Through her 20-plus year career, Holly has built a reputation as a master human-centered innovation strategist, trainer, and facilitator. Her passions include problem-solving, problem-framing, the organizational strategy, unleashing the diversity of people, leadership philosophy, and creating conditions that allow human creativity and curiosity to thrive. She is the founder and CEO of Ampersand Innovation, which I love that name, and you'll find out why a design thinking and human-centered innovation strategy consulting agency. Holly is the former chairperson and lead instructor of the Rutgers University Design Thinking Executive Education Program, which she may not know this, but that's my alma mater. She has lectured at the Parsons School of Design, Harvard Business School, Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, and many more prestigious schools. In addition, Holly has contributed to several books and is working on her own book, which I'm waiting to hear about. And Holly is a globally sought-after conference keynote speaker. She has a BA in chemistry and an MBA at Thomas More College. She lives in Cincinnati with her husband and four children. Holly, welcome. Hi. Thanks so much, Dr. Orsini. Really excited to join you today. 
This is uh, really looking forward to this. We met by phone through a mutual friend, I guess about a month ago. We spoke on the phone. Things were so great. I thought all I had to do was hit record. And I just, we had our interview. It just, without even preparing for it. So I'm sure it's going to go well. My audience is growing every week. I'm really very blessed that way. And it's right now, it's about 75% healthcare and 25% business. Although getting more and more amazing guests like you, I had Ann Barr Thompson that I just interviewed this morning. We've had Claude Silver, my cousin James Orsini from the Sasha Group. My business part is growing more and more. And I think that's because it's becoming evident to people that communication is communication. Mm -hmm. And that if you want to be successful in healthcare, you better learn to communicate with your coworkers, your team members, and especially your patients. And if you want to be a successful leader, you better learn how to communicate. And all that turns into this culture, which we're going to talk about. So I really am dying for, because I think my audience right now is asking two questions. Oh my goodness, what's design thinking? And how does this have to do with difficult conversations? And I promise you, we're going to answer both of those. So stay on. But before I ask you that question, I always start off the same way. Tell us who Holly Driscoll is. And by the way, this is what I'm told. This is the toughest conversation of all the interviews. Who's Holly Driscoll? And uh, tell me about your journey. Yeah, well, thanks for that. So I'm Holly O'Driscoll and I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I've actually been in this region my entire life. But I'm going to start with the early part of my life where for me, I got kicked out of kindergarten. So I went to kindergarten for two weeks (laughs) and I got kicked out for doing other people's work, telling the teacher how long she had to teach and it wasn't going so well. And so I remember the walk out to my mother's car and, you know, she said, get in, you're not going back to kindergarten. And I said, what am I going to do? And she said, I don't know. I was the oldest, right? Um, A kindergarten flunky. Oh, that's terrible. I had to wait a couple of weeks until the governor of Kentucky decided it was okay for me to go on to first grade. So, you know, looking back, I think there were early signs that I had a natural propensity to kind of push the boundaries and challenge assumptions. I just didn't have language for that, you know, at age five, for sure. And then I'll fast forward a little bit to middle school. So when I was in middle school, I had one of those really nice zipper pouches for my pens and pencils and still have this thing for stationary items, right? And I would loan them out to classmates and I wouldn't always get them back. And so I thought there's got to be a better way. And so I launched a pen and pencil rental business and it was two cents a minute for a pencil and five cents a minute for a pen. And so I came home. Per minute, you're tough. Uh, yeah, right? Some accountability, I think, <laughs> is good in the world. <laughs> and so I came home with this bag of money and you know, my mom says, what are you doing? I said, I'm running a business. She goes, oh my goodness, holy cow. But, you know, didn't you learn don't rock the boat in kindergarten? You know, what's going on? Go with the flow. And I think that we learn these messages and these ways of living and working and communicating really early on in our life. And I don't think they're serving us well. So, you know, fast forward to into my kind of university ending days. And I went and interviewed with P&G and joined in the engineering organization in 1996. So I spent six years there in engineering before moving on to the commercial side of the business. And so I have this depth of technical expertise that when slammed together with kind of the business side of things, really unlocked this kind of hybrid model of thinking and working inside of the organization. And there weren't a lot of people that kind of crossed that chasm between the technical and the commercial. So I moved to the design organization where I was brought in to really be able to translate from the technical and commercial and vice versa. And then round about 2007, design thinking came to P&G. And so this really was born out of a combination of efforts from the Stanford University D-School, IIT in Chicago, and University of Toronto in Canada. 
and really trying to apply the mindsets and methods of designers to business and business strategy and user experience and holistic design. And at that time, that was all pretty new to the world. But for me, I had a baby in 2007. And as soon as I came back, I got trained in, in design thinking. So for me, it changed my life because for the first time, I was able to fully practice this idea that, wow, people matter more than anything else that we can do. And that's what I feel like I was really missing in my engineering role and trying to, to really put people at the heart of that. And so I stayed in that part of the organization practicing design thinking for about another you know 11 or so years. I left a little more than two years ago because the outside world kept calling, right? On mm-hmm. how might we That's do a nice thing. So it was a really great pattern to kind of unlock, but also practicing that method and mindset of design thinking on prototyping. Is this going to work? Can I run a small experiment? Can I try it on? Can I try to figure it out? So yeah, so that's been really great. I've done quite a bit of consulting, both in the private sector and in the public sector, working on civic innovation challenges to you know, reimagining what an in-store experience might look like for a brand. Training in this space as well has been a really important part of the portfolio. And then also this academic lens. So you know, for me, that's when I launched my company, Ampersand Innovation. And you, know, you mentioned the title. And you know, for me, the title was really intentional and important. Because in design thinking, we talk about the power of end. When I think about unleashing that and doing that and telling that story, Ampersand represents that. And when you say and, you know, what really is it connecting? It's connecting people and ideas. And how do we really get intentional about bringing that forward in all that we do, right? The signals that we send, the words that we use, the way that we communicate, the way that we show up and behave as leaders, setting the stage for this to really take root and stick. So for me, Ampersand is not just a name, it's really a deep connection to really unleashing the potential of people and ideas. So so that's what I've been doing. And you mentioned my family and my husband and four kids and two horses and two bunnies and a dog. And, you know, we got the whole thing going on. Oh my God. I don't know how you're so, uh, have that much uh, energy. You answered the questions. Now we're talking about human centered. And again, I was asked to do this as a video way back then. And I decided to just do audio for many reasons, but one of the things that's missing when I can't do video is for my audience, Holly gets so excited when she talks about this. You've got this big smile. And when you talk about people, that's what really comes through. I can see it in your face. I mean, this is what I do. I, I do communication and body language. So there's your answer to your second question, audience. But what does this have to do with communication? It has everything to do with communication. Just design thinking the term. Can you just define that for us a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, and I'm going to give you my definition. There's many out there. And so the one that I've been sticking with is this human-centered approach to really anything that you want to go after. I focus on with clients quite a bit, solving problems, solving challenges. And I think communication may you know, fit under some of those constraints as well. But this human-centered approach, focusing on five principles that were made famous by the Stanford University D-School. The first is empathy. The second is problem definition. Third is ideation. Fourth is prototyping. And fifth is testing. And so this focus on empathy, empathy is first for a reason. Mm -hmm. The idea that you need to understand what it looks and feels like to be someone else and to experience their reality and recognize that their reality is their truth. And even if it's not yours, Mm -hmm. it's theirs. And we need to learn to go, wow, yeah. Can you tell me more about that? Right. So often, I feel like we've been socialized or educated and then corporatized to say, 
oh, I'm not sure I agree. Let me lean back and cross my arms and there you go. Maybe walk away mm-hmm. <laughs> or say, yeah, I don't agree. Therefore, something must be wrong with you. And there's a different way. If we lean and say, hold on a second, can you tell me more? I'm not sure I agree. I'm leaning in, you know, you can't see that on the mm-hmm. podcast, right? But you can start to imagine what it looks and feels like to lean in instead of kind of crossing the arms and bringing that to life. And so if you think about empathy as that first principle, it really is the foundation of everything else. Mm-hmm. Solving challenges with the person at the center, this whole concept of human centeredness, nothing else matters if the human needs aren't met. And so say you've got a terrific technology or you've got a cost structure or all these things that we're often asked to deliver on. If it's not adding value and meaning to the human experience, I would argue it's not useful. And how do we really prioritize the human needs first? It goes into the culture of the place. And as you speak, I'm really thinking about what happens in healthcare. And when I'm asked to train physicians on how to communicate, it's all about You said empathy. I use the word compassion, very similar. Mm -hmm. It's all about empathy, compassion. In fact, a few months ago, we had Helen Reese. Dr. Helen Reese was a guest on my show. And that's what she does. She teaches empathy. She's a Harvard psychologist and she does that to businesses as well. But I think what happens in medicine, I think is also what happens in business. We get really caught up in the numbers, Mm -hmm. the bottom line. Physicians tell me all the time that I forgot why I did this in the first place. And physician burnout is almost 60% right now. Physicians have the number one profession for suicides. And it's because you're taking that excitement out of what you're doing. And so when I'm able to speak to physicians and you know your five principles are almost the same five, I use a different acronym, but I'm like, oh my God, this is exactly have a plan, be empathetic, build a relationship, be a genuine person. Right. And what's really nice about when I do personal coaching with physicians or when I do it on a large scale is when you remind people, like you leaned over, that's exactly what I teach when I tell a doctor, how do you connect with a patient? But one of the things is don't look at a computer, lean over and look them in the eyes and smile and give them that active listening look where you're really concentrating on their eyes. Helen Reese used to say, make sure when you say hello to somebody, you remember what color their eyes are because it just forces you to look at them. But what's great about my job is that after I'm able to meet with them, even on a large scale, I get people come back to me and say, I remembered why I went into medicine in the first place. And you've given me a few techniques that I can bond with my patient and still not go home at nine, 10 o'clock at night because there you go to ampersand. You could have end. You can have job satisfaction and you can go home at five o'clock and you can bond with your patient and still see 25 patients a day. Yes. It's exactly right. And so I'm getting a long winded question here, but that leads into my biggest issues are how many people are put in leadership that have no business being in leadership? Oh my goodness. Because they're the smartest person in the group, Mm -hmm. but they can't communicate. They can't build loyalty. And again, I'm paralleling back to healthcare. There's physicians that I know that are brilliant, but their bedside manner is so bad and they're not trusted by their patients. And because they don't have the communication skills, which by the way, as you know, it's not that hard to teach. Right. You know, lean forward and look in your eyes. It's not that hard, but 
you can be the smartest person in the group and also be the worst leader. And that leads me into my question about what you do with leadership and culture. And the last time we spoke, you were discussing how these companies just have this horrible culture that you are asked to fix. So tell me about a poor leader, how that works. How do you fix the culture? How do you get people to get excited about their job again? Yeah. Long question. I love it because it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think so many organizations are struggling with, you know, how might we build a leader that really does inspire and promotes trust and creates a climate of candor and, you know, psychological safety, which I'll talk about in a moment. But when you think about the poor leaders, the leaders have been rewarded for a certain set of behaviors. And so part of what I've come to believe is that the conditions inside of the organization direct that the reward systems inside the organization promote a certain way of working, a way of getting results. And you might be the smartest person in the room, but it doesn't for a moment really make a difference when, you know, you maybe you've left a trail of bodies behind you because you've trampled over, you know, the rest of the team or you've taken all the credit or you've thrown people under the bus and mm-hmm. they continue to get rewarded. So until that reward system pauses and says, hold on a second, what kind of leader are we building here? What kind of organizational climate are we creating? And are we intentional about who we want to be as an organization, how we want to show up? What kind of employee experience do we want to deliver? What kind of end user or patient experience do you want to deliver? And what is that narrative that we want them to carry with them throughout the course of their journey? Whether that is, you know, you're coming in as a new hire or coming in as a new patient. When you think about, you know, when people are coming to healthcare providers, maybe it's when things are going well. We hope that they're going for well visits, but often that's not necessarily the case. And so how do you really step into that space and say, wow, you know, what narrative are we going after? What kind of experience are we aiming for? And so when I think about the leader, I think the leader is one kind of cog in that entire organization's machine. And The leader is just as much, I would say, an artifact of that culture as they are a contributor to that culture. And so when you think about, you know, they're building on this platform for which they've been rewarded. And until that reward system changes, it's really hard to change the leadership and the mindset and the way that leaders show up. So you kind of answered my next question, but I'm not sure. So my next question was going to be, do companies hire poor leaders or can you take a smart person and make them a leader. If you were giving advice to a new company, would you say, I can train most of your smart people to be good leaders or don't pick that person? I've trained thousands and thousands of doctors and I can tell you when it comes to communication skills and I call it compassionate communication, out of a hundred doctors, we found that 15% of them, I can put them in and you would love them as a new patient. They're wonderful. You'll walk through fire for them. And by the way, if you trust your doctor, you're very unlikely to sue them, even if something goes wrong. That's how much trust is important. Yeah. 15% of them, I could train every day. They're never going to get uh-huh. it, ever. But the other 70% are, teach me, I want to know. And this is awesome. So if you were starting a new company, which way do you go? Do you, you hire the good communicators or do you hire the smart people and teach them? You know, I would back up even one step further and I would choose to hire for integrity. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe integrity is something you can teach. 
But I absolutely believe leadership is something that you can teach. And if there's a willingness to kind of go there and grow there, it's a whole lot easier. So, you know, inspired by the work of Carol Dweck out of Stanford, she wrote a book called Mindset, and she talks about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And if you have been exposed to climates, maybe in your educational experiences, where it wasn't okay for you to be wrong, where getting something wrong meant there was something wrong with you. It's a lot harder to step into that growth mindset than it is to kind of stay in that fixed mindset where, you know, there's one right answer. There's only one right answer. You know, how can I figure out how to not look bad in this situation versus really saying, wow, what did we learn? And how can I grow and deliver on these experiences and expectations that not only the organization has, but the end users or the patients or the consumers, customers, clients, you know, whoever that is, what do they have? And so I would choose to hire for integrity and train leadership. But what comes with training leadership is also training this, I would argue, human-centered mindset on it's in service of others. This idea of servant leadership and coming with empathy, coming with curiosity, you know, as we, we mentioned earlier, kind of that leaning in versus crossing your arms and, and walking mm-hmm. away. There's ways to do it. And often I find organizations just fly right by it on, oh, because you passed the screening process, we assume that you're going to be able to lead this team. In fact, you know, if you think back to the first time that you managed a team, were you well-trained to go and do that, to lead that group of people? And most of the time, you know, people respond to that question with, no, Holly, they weren't, mm-hmm. right? They weren't trained to do that. And so they learned by fire and they learned from some really tough experiences. And there's an opportunity to step in and feel more supported and to get really intentional about the skill set that you want to build every step of the way. And I think Mm -hmm. that, that point around getting intentional is just as important as the integrity piece on, you know, how do you hire for integrity and then get really crystal clear and intentional around the skills that you want to build such that you're cultivating great leaders not just now in the moment in the organization, but great leadership that will carry you into the next 50 years, 100 years, you know, whatever that horizon looks like in your organization. You know, this idea of now and for generations to come, how do you establish those standards of leadership and high expectations to set the stage for what's important here? What gets rewarded here? What's valued? What are those stories that we tell each other when, you know, maybe you run into your neighbor walking the dog around the block? What would you say to them about the leader you have in your organization or what the climate of the place is or kind of the idea that the CEO talks about? You know, what do you stand for in the hearts and minds of people? One of the words that I use all the time is genuine. For sure. And you spoke about leaders. Is there only one answer? I'll make an observation that I noticed when I was training that the smartest people in the room had several correct answers for some one question. Because they were so confident in their ability that I think that when you truly understand something, you understand there's more than one way of doing it. But the word I'm thinking of, I use all the time is insecurity, right? So the leaders who are insecure, they just, it has to be done this way. And well, why can't it be done that way? Just because it has to be done this way. And I think I've had some bosses who were so smart, like, okay, well, that's not the way I would do it, but go ahead. Mm -hmm. And it makes you engaged and it makes you exciting. And I don't understand I guess my audience is getting tired of me saying this before. I don't understand how certain people advance to these leadership Mm -hmm. and then tear down the culture, which is the next question I'm going to ask you, that you tear down a culture of a place where, I guess I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but it's something to the effect of the worst thing that could happen is when your employees go silent. Mm -hmm. 
that's your best employees. And I've seen that before. I've worked with bosses that I would kill for. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with bosses that I didn't trust. Stephen Covey is on this week. His podcast dropped this week, The Speed of Trust. And I don't get it, Holly. Yeah. <laughs> I really like, wh- why do we let these people lead when we can find somebody? And I guess people like you are helping. But now let's go into the next step. So now you've got these poor leaders. Your culture is terrible. The employees are leaving. Your employee engagement's so bad. You got this turnover. The leader doesn't trust the workers, don't trust the leader. They're walking the dog and they're talking about what it, and ask their, their bosses. And then they call you. Yeah. And how do you fix that monumental problem? Walk us through that. Yeah. It's a really interesting scenario. And, you know, for me, I don't think of it as fixing. I think of it as guiding on, you know, when you think about, wow, really understanding what are those drivers? What are those behaviors? And using a lot of the tools that we use in the innovation space to really unlock what's going on. So one of the ones that we use quite often, we call an empathy map, and it's really focused on sketching out what are people thinking, feeling, saying, and doing. And you know what's happening on kind of the inside, which is the thinking in the mind and the feeling in the heart. And then what's happening on the outside, what are people saying? What are the words that are coming out of their mouths? And what are they doing? What are those behaviors that show up? And really sketching out, what does that look like? What does it look like for a specific leader? What does it look like if you were to do an analysis across the core leadership team? And how's that impacting your group? So the idea that certainly the leader sets the tone for the rest of the organization is absolutely true because everybody's watching. I'll share a, not to interrupt you, I'll share an old Italian quote that my grandfather used to say. (laughs) The fish rots from the head down is what he used to say. Yes, I I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Which, by the way, is not true. Fish don't rot for the head down, but I use that all the time. Sorry to interrupt you, no, but I just had to say. <laughs> and I have a friend that says the same quote, and um, I think mm-hmm. it's really genius. Interesting to know the physiology is actually not true. Not is true. They rot? <laughs> <laughs> but organizationally, I would say absolutely it's happening in that way. And so we would do some work to really map out what's going on. How are people feeling? What are those stories they're coming in with? And I do a lot of work with images as well. And have people choose an image that represents what it feels like to come into work every day. And sometimes, you know, I've had people choose an image that is a radar shot of a cyclone or a hurricane. And, and they're like, this is what it looks and feels oh, like. Great. Okay, tell me about that. And so evoking those stories, those human-centered stories are so much more impactful because I've seen other organizations that say, oh, we'll look at the employee survey of engagement or employee opinions or employee feedback. And I'll say, fair enough, but I'm not really interested in the survey. And they say, what do you mean? And I say, my goodness, you know, if your spreadsheet has, I don't know, how many employees do you have? You have 5,000 employees. You want me to look at the 5,000 row spreadsheet and tell me that overall your average is a 4.4? I don't (laughs) care, right? Mm -hmm. The metrics are really lopsided in a lot of organizations as well. Because if you're high-fiving because you got a 4.4, you know, out of five, why? What does that matter? And what those moments for your employees look like every day and the impact that those leaders are having on them. And the running joke that I often share is, you know, nobody's ever looked at a spreadsheet that size and said, oh, 4.4, I'm brought to tears as a result of the 4.4. But every story (laughs) that anyone shares, you know, there's something you can take away that's going to stay with you for a really long time. And sometimes it does result in tears for them and for me, right? And you feel like, wow, you know, these are the stories that need to surface. And I think that is so linked to our collective humanity. 
you know, for generations, humans have sat around campfires and listened to the stories and learned about life in that way and learned lessons that way. And wow, a survey doesn't do it justice. And yet it happens all the time. And so I would prefer a dozen or so really great deep conversations to get a snapshot versus a survey. And I know it's quick and easy, and that's our mindset in our busy Western world. But I would argue there's such limited effectiveness and usefulness there. And frankly, it's dehumanizing the depth of relationship and connection that could be happening inside of organizations. Imagine if you got some stories early on versus waiting for the survey to kick in. You know, what was it like today? Or if you could choose through the Paris airport, I used to travel when that was a thing to do. I was gone about (laughs) the past couple of years and I passed through Charles de Gaulle. And, you know, if you went to the restroom in there, they had this little stand and you'd hit, you know, how was the condition of the restroom today? And you could have a frown or a straight face or a smile and then one that's joyful, right? And you Mm -hmm. you can get this emotional data in ways that, you know, don't rely on, hey, your score is a 4.4. So starting there and understanding what's going on with the people is always the richest place, you know, when I'm taking on one of those situations, because it's rooted in the empathy. It's in our DNA from the caveman days to relationship, to form a human connection with people. And that's, I brought up genuine before. If your leader or your coworker, if you happen to know that they have, how many did you say you have four dogs or a couple of rabbits? Four kids, a rabbit. Bunnies and a dog. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. So if you share, and I say that to physicians all the time, share personal information with your patients, you become a real person. It's that human to human interaction. It's in our DNA. And if you really want to be happy at work, I'm astounded of how many companies do these employee engagement surveys, get poor scores and then do nothing about it. Right. That's the worst because not only did you tell them how you felt, but nobody cared enough to do anything about it. Are you kidding? Their response is they're crazy. I don't believe them. Right. You know, I love the point you're hitting on though, which I would describe as vulnerability. You know, how do you have mm-hmm. a snapshot into someone's personal reality? What does it look and feel like for them? And as leaders, the leaders that show up with a sense of vulnerability connect with their organization so much better. And if you're sharing stories of, hey, you know, this is the vision for that we have for the future. Here's an example of what that could look like. And oh, by the way, let me tell you a story about a time when, you know, I tried to do something really hard and it didn't go so well. I used to have shame with my kindergarten story. And then about Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, I was on maternity leave and doing some reflection and thought, wow, there's a pattern here. And instead of feeling badly about that moment in my life, I need to connect the dots and be really explicit such that other people can start to connect the dots in their own journeys and to figure out what does that mean for their gifts and their energy and the impact they can have in the world. And you know, I used to not feel great about that. But when you think about being vulnerable and setting the stage for sharing stories and sharing this idea of, you know, we're humans and we're complex and we're emotional and wow, what better way to connect with others than to bring that forward in yourself? Especially you brought up a new leader and, you know, I'll tell you something funny about medicine. It's the only job as you're training that you only have two choices. You either get promoted or you get fired. Wow. So, you know, you start off your training in medical school, then you became a resident, your first year resident. You have to really screw up very badly. Otherwise, you're going to get promoted. You're going to get promoted. But now you find yourself in a new job and a new leader. There's nurses around you, or maybe you're a seasoned physician and you've just taken a director job. The best thing that you can do is to be genuine, to be humble, and to say, 
how do we do things here? Instead of coming in and saying the nurses and your workers, especially if you're brand new, they know you don't know what you're doing. They're not stupid. So don't fake it. Right. As they think, oh my gosh, I've got to train them such that they can get up and shine. So say, help me be vulnerable. I love that. There's so many parallels between what you do and medicine and Last time I spoke to you, I'm going, I need to get Holly to fix medicine because oh it's goodness. just a mess. <laughs> I don't know if I have those kind of superpowers, but I'm up for the fight. Well, the medicine culture right now, and uh, we'll get to the next question shortly, but in the culture of medicine right now, and I think we talked about this last time, it's not the insurance companies that's killing medicine right now. It's the inability of the hospital administrations, the leaders to speak to the nurses and the doctors and the people on the ground floor. And that's no different to business. Yeah. And if I went and told the CEO how to do their P&L, mm-hmm. he'd look at me like, what the hell do you know? Right. And so that's what happens with physicians when you have administrators who say, do this. And the doctors look at them and go, what are you talking about? Like, this is nothing to do. And that caused job dissatisfaction, employee turnover, all that kind of stuff. So I think I'm talking too much. I want you to talk more, but couple more questions. The next one is, I know you give some training sessions, which are a day, right? Some of them are two, three days long or even longer. And you're training a large number of people. And I know this happens to you because it happens to me all the time. There's always the guy or girl that sits in the back and you can tell from her body language or his body language that they think you are full of crap. Right. Right. And why do I have to sit here? This is so stupid. Just let me do my job and I'll get out of here. You know, I've been pretty fortunate for the most part through the workshops and a little humor and kind of engaging that most of them come along. You know, what do you do with that person? Because they have to be on board, too. Yeah, boy, they absolutely have to be on board, too. I love that. And I would say name it. So I call them the skeptics. And so if you name the skeptics in the room and you you know who they are, the energy is different. The contact is different. The stance, whether they're standing or whether they're sitting, you know, that you can go, oh, okay, you're there. On their phone. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly right. And someone either sent you here or this was better than going to your day job today. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) one of those two is usually the case, right? You might be a tourist or you might be kind of here because someone said, no, you need to go and you need to get fixed or learn how to work in this way. And I make it visible. And so you say, hold on a second, right? What's going on? You know, what are you thinking about? Can you bring a story that'll contribute to vulnerability or, you know, empathy for your patient, for example? And tapping into them and making it really visible has been super effective, right? So if it's a group that is, I'll say 50 people or less, one of the first things I do when I walk in is go through introductions and I want to know who's in the room and it takes some time for sure, but it's super intentional around creating this space for human centeredness and What's more human-centered than knowing the names of the people that you're sharing space with? Mm -hmm. And I am astonished by the number of leaders in organizations who don't know the names of kind of their two down, right? They know the direct reports. They don't know the names of the people at a second level down. They don't know the names of their direct reports children or their pets or their significant other or whoever. But connecting at a human level, so, so important. And so once I know their names, We've done the round of introductions. I play it back to them. And like, okay, you know, Dr. Orsini, hi, really glad that you're here. And I'll say, let me make sure I get it straight. I'll do the circle. And people are kind of astonished at that point. I love that. That's a great, I'm going to steal that. I like (laughs) it. Please. (laughs) Learning the names really matters. So when I can say, 
you know, hey, Sarah, I noticed that your body language is a little different. Do you have something to add to this? Or what's going on? You know, I called someone out in a session once and she said, I really have a toothache. And I said, okay, hold on. Let me go get some ibuprofen out of my bag. Let me help you. And so I called a break and said, you know, hey, here's what we're going to do. We'll come back in 10 minutes. I'm going to help her and get her what she needs. You go grab a coffee and we'll be back in 10 minutes. And she said, I was so afraid to speak up and say something. I have some ibuprofen in my bag, but I didn't want to interrupt. And I'm like, no, right? This is about human centeredness. Go do what you need to do for you. Let me go get the bottle of stuff and I'll get you a glass of water. You stay put. But modeling that for the group sent such a signal on, hey, it's perfectly fine. You know, if a new person enters the conversation or enters the room, somebody comes in late invariably, uh, I'll invite Mm -hmm. them and say, welcome. Hi, I'm Holly. Who are you? And they'll say, you know, oh, I'm Tom. Okay. Hi, Tom. Welcome. What do you guys think Tom needs to know? And I said, Tom, I'm not calling you out because maybe you had a perfectly good reason or you had something going on. I'm not coming from a place of judgment. I want you to feel included and a part of the conversation. So let's pause for a moment and say what we think Tom needs to know. And we'll spend a couple of minutes doing that. But what happens there? The group says, oh, all right, we're going to bring them along. We're not going to make them feel badly and sit in the back or you know, make Tom <laughs> feel like I need to sneak in and I need to be really quiet and pretend I'm invisible when everybody knows you're not. We have these really weird behaviors for these moments that could be handled in much more human-centered ways. And so one of those with a skeptic is calling them out. Hey, Sarah, what's going on for you? And really bringing them into that conversation and inviting them into the story. When I kick off a session, usually we start in a circle in the in-person days. And now we do it on Zoom, right? And, And we do it with the screen share off. And you can see all the faces. I ask everybody to turn their cameras on. But it's intended to be an analogous circle. And we start in a circle for a reason because that's where the stories come from. That's the campfire. Sometimes I'll turn on a YouTube clip of a fireplace as well to really set the tone if I think people are going to get stuck. I love and that. It's such a great signal to say, hey, we're here to support each other. I used to do a lot of workshops in a space that was a loft space and had a hardwood floor. And in the middle of the hardwood floor, we had a green carpet. And we called it the green carpet of candor where you could safely share your truth. And the expectation is that everyone else supports you and you can count on me to support you as well. So whatever that difficult conversation is, that spirit of candor and openness, and I'm not here to judge what you're saying. I'm here to support you to find and reveal your truth is so, so important. And we can do it. We've just been socialized to operate in other ways that maybe are more comfortable until you get comfortable trying on something new. And you're walking the walk. You're not just because you're including those people. And many people want to just be included. I'll tell you a funny story. When I was in college, I made some money by being a substitute teacher in the inner city in Newark, New Jersey. And it was a tough school. I think they paid me $45 for the whole day. But I would go there and I'd sit there and I was terrified because the kids wouldn't be, they'd run around, they wouldn't be listening. And I learned after about three days, find the kid who's really the worst kid there, the one who's causing all the trouble you got it. and say, you know, Tommy, today you're in charge of keeping everybody quiet. Right. And I was like, I came home. I said, Ma, this is awesome. Like the bully now is telling everybody to be quiet. And he, you know what? All I was doing was making him matter. Yeah. And that's all he really wanted to do is yeah. be, he didn't want to be the bully. He wanted to be the teacher's helper. Yeah. And once I learned that trick, it was the easiest money I ever made. It was great. But the insight there holds, whether it's, you know, kids in third grade or grownups and professionals and physicians and 
everybody wants to feel like they matter. And if you can bring the energy and the eye contact and the ability to demonstrate that they are the only person in the room that matters in that moment, you can tell them anything, right? You have the ability to do that because it's rooted in trust. So I love that you talk about Stephen Covey and the speed of trust. That was actually a course that was put on internally when I was working at Procter & Gamble. So that core to the culture is, you know, the importance of trust and everything else kind of stems from there. And absolutely the bedrock of leadership and engagement. You know, I find it really interesting that the Gallup organization says, you know, I think it's 16% of employees are actively engaged every day. And you feel like 16%, are you kidding? But I would argue the remaining 84% maybe don't have that level of trust with their leader, with their manager. And trying to set the stage for something that is so, so important as trust is really hard. If you're one, what we talked about earlier, right? Rooted in integrity. You need to be rooted in integrity. You need to be really intentional and intentional on your behaviors, what you say, what you do, how you show up. Are you consistent? What Mm -hmm. signals are you sending? Because if we can situationally kind of shift our tolerance for behaviors on, oh, because it was the leader that said that, I'm just going to keep nodding, right? You've probably seen this happen a million Mm -hmm. times where, you know, behind closed doors, you'd be saying, what in the world is that? And you would never put up with that from your team. How might the organization create a climate and you're starting with the leader where the leader can say, hey, if I'm not congruent and consistent with the principles I say are so important, I need you to hold me accountable. And that Mm -hmm. only comes from a place of trust. We can go on forever and ever. The program that I do in the name of my book, it's all in the delivery. One of the key components of the program, after we train everyone how to communicate, how to build relationships with each other in the entire hospital, how to build relationships with the patients, telling them that it's not what you say, it's how you say it, just as we've been talking. By the way, audience, there's been a lot of communication skills here that we've discussed. So I'm meeting my promise. We do something called see something, say something. And so we have these little stickers that say it's all in the delivery. And anyone in the hospital, you could be the housekeeper, is allowed to give the doctor, the nurse, or anyone in the hospital, if they've had a good communication, they've bonded a little sticker. I was shocked when I did this first time four years ago. You can be a 65-year-old director or CEO, and you get a sticker, you get a big smile on your face. It's amazing, right? Like you're 65 years old, and you get a sticker. But the other thing that we do is that we also empower everyone to also say, I noticed. So sometimes I get really busy. Maybe I don't have a good conversation with an employer. Maybe I didn't smile and say hello. The housekeeper can say to me, Dr. Orsini, it's all in the delivery. Mm. And my response, and we get everybody to promise to do this. My response is, well, thank you, Sandy. I forgot or I got caught up and this is why it works. So you need that positive reinforcement. You need that negative reinforcement for the audience out there. Holly and I can talk forever because I can see your face. You get so excited about this stuff. You know how excited I get about this stuff because it's cool to be able to learn communication and to learn about your DNA and how people feel. And if it's frustrating a little bit to me because I don't think it's that hard. Oh, I so agree, right? right? This is part of how we're wired as humans. We've been brought up in systems that don't allow us to practice this in a thoughtful and intentional way, or we've been so conditioned to be zero-sum thinkers. And it doesn't have to be that way. How can we lean in and say, hey, boy, I think this is going to be tough, but we're going to get through it together and let's talk about it. And even those most challenging conversations can be handled in thoughtful and human-centered and compassionate ways 
when they're rooted in relationship and trust. Absolutely. So last question, I ask everybody the same question. It's the toughest one. <laughs> Next, to tell me about yourself. Yeah, yeah. What's the most difficult conversation that you've had? You don't have to get personal or you could just call it a type of conversation that you find the most challenging. Yeah. You know, I think type of conversation is a really great way to put it because when I think about what makes it challenging, I think it's kind of wrapping up a lot of what we've talked about. And the conversations that are tough is are the ones that are not rooted in trust. So if you feel like you need to not tell the full story or sugarcoat some things. One of the things I find is so important, you know, the more experiences I have and the older I get and the more intentional I want to be for setting the tone for my kids is this importance of congruence. And you, you talked about kind of walking the talk and having a stated way of thinking and doing and, you know, wanting to serve up to the world and bringing that to life are so important and more important to me Mm -hmm. now than ever. You know, you think about, I'm 45 and wow, the older you get, the more important that congruence comes to be. And the toughest conversations are when the trust isn't there. And when you think about the absence of trust, that makes everything harder. Because I could say, you know, I talk about it often as the spinach and the teeth test. So if, if you and I didn't know each other and, you know, I noticed that, you know, you're sitting in the cafeteria and I think, oh my goodness, he's got the spinach in his teeth. Is it okay for me to approach you as a stranger and say, hold on, you've got spinach in your teeth? Or are you Mm going to be mortified or embarrassed? Or how could she and how rude that is? But you would tell your partner, you would tell your child, you would tell your friend, you've got spinach in your teeth, right? (laughs) They'd say, thank you. Because they know you're coming from a good place. Versus, you know, places where you don't have that trust established, they might say, huh all right, that was really uncomfortable and that was weird. And what are they doing looking at my teeth anyway? And all of these narratives that are not helpful when it was coming from a place of help. And so absence of trust is what makes that awkward. That word comes up every week, Holly. Every week that word comes up and I'm going to keep pounding it home until everybody gets it. So yeah, I think that's really the biggest barrier to handling conversations, whether they're great conversations or whether they're really challenging conversations, because even the great ones are improved by trust. Mm-hmm. Don't you want to share great news with people that you feel a depth of connection and relationship with? And even more satisfying that is for us as people to be able to share those great moments in addition to navigating the challenging ones. And I'll finish up by saying, and people trust people who are real people, not fake people. And so I teach physicians and nurses how to build trust in less than a minute. And so you can be genuine, as I say, be real, build the trust, be humble. Boy, you taught us a lot of stuff today, Holly. This is awesome. It's been so fun. And boy, you are spot on that we could talk for hours because I am deeply committed to the belief that this is something the world needs more of. You know, people often ask me, what's next for design thinking? You know, it's been in business for a while. Now it's starting to show up in university education and in some schools as well, kind of K through 12. I say, wow, you know, I'd like for this to be the way that work gets done, the way that people live and to bring that congruence to life on, you know, human centeredness and curiosity and empathy and candor and trust. All of those are so important. And, you know, arguably this might be something our country needs more than ever, right? Oh, definitely. And we're filming this the day after the, for the audience, the day after the election, we don't know who the president is, but we need to communicate better. And I think, again, there's so much cross-reactivity here between 
healthcare, your personal life, your professional life. And that's why I'm I'm working with businesses and they're saying, what's an ICU physician working with business leaders? But it's the same thing. If you can build that trust, it. it doesn't really matter what it is. Yeah, so this is a moment of common humanity for sure. You got it. This has been really a lot of fun. Holly, finishing up real quickly, your book coming along. Oh, I'm working on it. My goodness. It's hard. I finished mine in May. I can't believe how hard it is, right? I am trained to crank out corporate memos. No problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, translating a lot of that into a book format is harder, but I'm writing about how do you really humanize leadership and bring these concepts and ways of working to life in a way that they're no, I would love it to be a place when they're no longer special, where we can look around the organizations that we work in, that we connect with, that we kind of contribute to or are customers of and patronize. How do we look around those organizations and say, wow, you know, this sense of human centeredness, this is the way. And that's what's normal instead of a lot of these stories that often we get caught up in that we hear all the time that aren't so positive. So that's my greatest wish. I can't wait to read it. How would anybody get in touch with you? What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? You know, I would say LinkedIn is absolutely the best way. I'm under Holly N. O'Driscoll. There's another Holly O'Driscoll I came to know about. And so I had to add the middle initial into the mix. But LinkedIn absolutely is the best way. You know, people often ask me, oh, you know, do you have a website? I'm like, well, I'm working on it. But I got to tell you, I've managed to, you know, go on for a couple of years without it. It's going okay. And so LinkedIn really does seem to be the catch-all for all that looks like. So I've chosen to to really focus on making a difference for clients and for projects versus building my website. Well, we are going to put all that in the show notes. So if you're driving, you don't need to remember it. We're going to put all Holly's uh, links into our show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe or tell your friends, download all the previous podcasts. If you want to hear more about the Orsini way and what we do, you can reach me through any LinkedIn, but also through my website, theorsiniway.com. My email is drorsini at theorsiniway.com. Thank you so much, Holly. I can't wait for this to air. And thanks so much for coming on. This was just so much fun. And what a great way to spend some time this afternoon and super inspired. Yeah, we'll have to figure out a time where we can go on for longer and continue to share stories because I talk about conversations as making you feel taller or shorter. And this one certainly made me feel taller. So inspired and excited to contribute. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thanks so much and take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.